These are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Today, I have a real treat to share with you. Trauma healing comes in all shapes and sizes. If you've been spinning your wheels in any way, trying to push yourself into the next gear, but for some reason you're just not getting any traction, (laughs) well, maybe it's a good time to pause, step back, and take a look at the bigger picture. Umar Hamid is a coaching consultant who will share some vital wisdom to help us all do just that. He will walk us through the learnings he has gleaned from over 25 years in the neurolinguistic programming field and 15 years in the consulting field. And I know we will all come away with some precious gems of wisdom that will help propel us forward in our lives, however we define that for ourselves. Are you or someone you know looking for that next step in your career? Are you interested in mediation, conflict resolution, or conflict transformation? For 30 years, Baltimore Mediation has been a leader in the dispute resolution and conflict transformation field, training professional mediators and leaders across the U.S. in methods of conflict intervention and decision-making support from a relational approach. Trainings with Baltimore Mediation will give you the knowledge and skills to promote quality dialogue and informed decision-making between multiple people involved in conflict, whether in the workplace, family system, court system, or daily life. Baltimore Mediation's trainings are nationally acclaimed and sell out quickly. If you act now, you can secure one of the few spots open for the upcoming training, the 20-hour short course, Advanced Conflict Transformation and Mediation Skills Training, with a focus on family conflicts, parenting plans, and trauma. Find out more and register on their website at www.baltimoremediation.com. Welcome to Season 3, Trauma Healing Learning 20, Neuro-Linguistic Programming and Lifelong Learning with Umar Hamid. Hello, Blink of an Eye family. In the companion Blink of an Eye story episode, we have just been immersed in the ins and outs of figuring out schooling in a rehabilitation facility. Today, we are continuing the conversation, but more generally in the way of lifelong learning with an incredible guest, Umar Hamid. Umar is a consultant who uses applied neuroscience and neuro-linguistic programming to help businesses and individuals become exceptional. He is the founder of the consulting company No Limits Selling and the author of several books, including Unleash Your Crazy Sexy Brain. He is also the host of the No Limits Selling podcast and is the creator of the Mindset Booster app. For over 15 years, he has helped thousands of individuals and businesses 
to use NLP to change mindsets that are causing them suffering or holding them back from their potential. Umar is also a lifelong learner, as you'll hear in our conversation. And though his area of concentration is business, his true focus is on healing trauma and helping people to live their most fulfilled, most heartfelt, and most self-actualized lives. It has so much to do with eliminating the barriers that keep us from adopting a growth mindset. Well, in the story episode, we've been reflecting deeply on the restored sense of purpose and emotional healing that creating a new learning environment brought to Archer and to our family when we incorporated schooling into his recovery time at the Shepherd Center. Well, Umar's insights today will bring further depth to that exploration, but also help us to understand both the value of a growth mindset in all aspects of our lives and the ways we ourselves might lean into such a way of thinking. We will also explore interesting topics for caregivers that might bring fresh perspective to many. So, settle in, take a deep breath, and anticipate the knowledge and wisdom and hopefulness contained in this conversation. Here we go. Welcome, Umar. Hey, Louise, what a joy to be on this show with you. And one of the big things when you were describing my background that you missed is we're dear friends. Oh, I have worked with Umar professionally, and we've done things professionally together over a number, many, many years. But I've also can call Umar a dear friend and even like a brother to me for the tragedies in our lives we've been through, but really just through living our lives before we had tragedy in our lives. So I I welcome you with open arms. And I really would love for our listening audience to understand more, not only about you, Umar, but to understand a little bit more if they're unfamiliar with neuro-linguistic programming. Could you give us some of the basics of NLP? Sure. One of the blessings of NLP is when it started, it's like, this is the best way we know now, but there's always a better way. And because of that, it's something that's uh, evolving and getting better and brighter. So it's really hard to pin down what it is. But I'll give you my definition. There's many out there. NLP really is studying what happens inside your inner world as it relates to the outer world, your inner experience dictates how you see the world around you and we can change the world around us but we can change our inner experience and if we change that we create change in our behavior you could have someone that let's say has a phobia around speaking or lots of anxiety around it and they could go to a therapist for six months and then one thursday afternoon the therapist says something that creates an epiphany that creates change within that human being. So before the therapist said that thing, that magic thing after six months of therapy, the person was stuck. They said that thing, and a moment later, they were unstuck. 
what happened at that change point? I'm not concerned about the six months, but what happened inside that human being that got them to go from being anxious and afraid to being bold and amazing in that moment? What if we could get people to that moment, not in six months or six years, what if we could get them to that moment right now? could do that, we would change the world because we would teach people. See, it turns out that the only thing in the entire world that we control is our mindset. The only problem is we don't know how to do it. I mean, this pen came with the owner's manual. Press this to get the thing out and don't poke someone in the eye. We're not responsible for lawsuits. But this amazing gift is just like, oh, you've got this mind. Have a nice day. And that's what I want to do is to teach people how to take charge their mindset so they can decide how they feel and show up in life. Because we all have trauma growing up. Even when if you didn't have trauma, you thought you had trauma. Like my mother was so, uh, this is a true story. This is just uh, someone I was chatting with this lady. She was like in her late eighties talking about uh, her husband and he had a, a horrible mother that was never there for any of his baseball games, any of his activities. His father had left when he was a little kid and his wife said, wait a minute, didn't your mother have to work three jobs to support both of you and make sure you had money to go to baseball? And he, he just went, oh my God, all this time, I thought she didn't care, but she was actually working her heart out to serve me. So as a kid, he made the meaning. Yeah, exactly. It's a meaning making machines. Right. She's not there for me, doesn't care. And then as an adult, in that moment when she said that statement, it changed everything. It changed their relationship just by changing the meaning he had made. Yes. The and oftentimes the meaning create. we make is not the right one. Right. It's the correct one for us at that moment. Right. 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 The story that we develop to make meaning of something might not really be the complete story or the real story. Yeah, and sometimes that's tragic and sometimes it's incredibly useful. It's like uh, Louise says, who are you? You're too dumb to do this. And I go, I will show her and I go build empires. We have anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 beliefs that define who we are. And most of those beliefs we get when we're kids under the age of seven. And so oftentimes parent, parents fret. It's like, oh my God, did I scar my kid? It's like, well, let me tell you this. Let's say there's two identical twins. Uh, they're six years old. They're in the family room. It's late at night. And mom comes in and says, okay, clear up your mess. Time for bed. Twin A goes, mom loves me. And she wants me to get a good night's rest. And twin two is like, she doesn't want me to have fun. She's always had to get me. Mom just did the same thing. It's the meaning that we make is what counts. So dear parents, uh, just the intent that you use to raise your kids is the most important. And don't worry, if you scar them, there are more clients for me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the brain uh, is so resilient. But you know, I'm just laughing at my own uh, background because when I left the practice of law in a big law firm, you know, shiny, glitzy, had been there uh, seven years, and it was like I was about to be launched into the partnership yeah. and thought it was the path for me as a, as a big litigator. And I made this decision to start a mediation firm. And one of the main partners whom I went to tell about my departure decision, he put his arm around me. This is 
30 years ago, and he said, Louise, the pavement is cold out there. You'll be back and we'll be here. Like he intended to be fatherly, even brotherly to me. And instead it was like, I will never come back to the practice of law. (laughs) In that way, as generous and loving as I experienced him. But that was the other part of the story was, no, (laughs) I was one of those, I'll show you kind of things. Not quite with that umbrage, but nonetheless. So yeah, all these moments as you speak of, these kind of shiny moments. So what is it that NLP does that can sort of fast forward the six years or the six months in therapy that you've experienced? Who's saying Georgia on my mind? Georgia. Yeah, I forget the guy's name, Georgia. but he sings it in such a way that is magical. Yeah, it's magical. And it's it croons. Yeah, and it touches your soul. Touches you can have somebody soul. else singing the same song, and it just won't have the magic he had. And so, we whatever we do, whether we're a litigator or NLP or we're a tennis player, our personality informs the lessons and the trainings we have to deliver the results we get. And so uh, in my journey, NLP is certainly a major part of it, but also becoming a really good hypnotist, also studying different areas of change and transformation, kind of bring this amalgam of uh, skills. And the whole idea is this, is that every single human being has a model of the world, how they think the world works. And in, for some people, NLP does not exist in that world. So, well, I don't want to do that. It sounds weird. So my goal is to match the human being that I'm working with at their model of the worlds. And the whole idea is to do this is most people, probably me included, have a death grip on our reality. And if you and I were in the same room and I said, you're not getting this pen and you try to steal this pen from me, we would wrestle on the ground like a bunch of idiots for at least 20 minutes and you may grab the pen. So you are right now, um, because you, I can see you, you are holding a pen very tightly, yes. like with the very death tightly. grip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you may eventually get this. So most people hold on to their reality, even if they don't like it with a death grip because it defines who they are, even if they don't like it. And so part of my uh, goal is to not take the pen away, but to loosen their grip so they have the possibility. And right now I'm loosening my grip and the pen is kind of wiggly that allows for the possibility of change. And if we can do that, we can go into a place of transformation. What do I do is very much figure out what is going on deep within them. So oftentimes we have a belief that we've created that locks us into this position that we're in. And it could be that I'm the best salesperson in the world. And if that's my belief and all of a sudden my results show it, even if that's a lie, who cares? I'm delivering the results I want. But let's say I'm a successful uh, business person and I feel like I am a loser and that's my belief. I could still get good results, but my level of anxiety and unhappiness would be profound. Mm -hmm. And that I am a loser may not even be true in any sense of the word, but some meaning that I made along the life created that for me. So what NLP and other tools allow us to do is to go in and 
sometimes circumvent the conscious mind to go access what's going on because your mind, Louise, lies to you all the time. And here's why it lies to you is number one, a superpower that we all have is rationalizing things and we don't use language accidentally. So something's going on and we tell rational lies to ourselves to justify that behavior or that circumstance. So you could have someone in a family, let's say it's a, a five-year-old girl in the family and she ends up being the savior for the family. So if anybody's bullying a brother, even an older brother, she's the one that'll stand up for her brother or for her mother. And she's a little warrior and that's, but then that defines her. And oftentimes when I come across people like that, they're the person in the entire family that Aunt Betty is sick. That person will quit their job and go live with Aunt Betty and basically look after her for six months. And at the end of it, it's like, thank you very much. And then they'll go back and try and hobble their life back together. And the next family member that needs saving, they'll volunteer, even though they hate it and it's destroying their, their life. But that's the role that they took on and they're holding on to that, even though they might complain about it. But that's how they define themselves. So we get caught up in this pattern of showing up that way. And the universe conspires to give you more opportunities to experience that role. It's like all of a sudden relatives are dropping sick all over the place. It's like, what the hell? And so there's people that I know that are like extremely lucky and extremely successful. And they could actually fall over and, you know, discover like a bag of gold. I mean, like, cause it's, it's uncanny. So oftentimes we create the realities that we complain about or we celebrate. So it's more to do with us than them. So it's that um, idea of changing the inner experience. Um, yeah. But I think you're bringing on a new piece, which is that when we can change our inner experience, our outer experience, even though we might not be able to change it, let's say in spinal cord injury, you might still have paralysis, but you can also begin to change part of that outer experience by how yeah. it is that you then interact with so let's go to that in a second I'll, I'll why does nlp work so quickly let me answer that and we'll kind of go there because i think it's really really important because there's two areas of concern the family as well as the person that's going through the trauma and both need help mentally but uh here's the story i was doing a workshop and this uh woman comes in she's at the back and you met Sheena when we were uh, together in Baltimore. She's my significant other. And she was sitting in the back also. And uh, this woman's really fascinated about what I'm teaching, what I'm doing. And Sheena goes, go up and see him because, you know, you need help. Because, no, I don't want to do it. She says, so she forces her to come up. She comes up and we're sitting together and she just starts weeping because her life is, is tragic mm. and there's no hope. Mm. And I say, well, you know, come in for a session. You know, I'm going to help you on the house. Don't worry about finances because I know they're tough. Come on in. And in the first session, what we uncover is this, is that one part of her knows that she has to be successful because she's got two kids and they're depending on her. But the second part is when she was younger, her mother died mm. and her she loved her dad. She's going to live with her dad. But her mother's family says, no, he's going to be a bad influence. So they actually are going to 
taking him to court to make sure they get custody of her, not the father. Mm. And the father gets freaked out and he leaves Canada and goes to the States. And as soon as you take a kid, even though it's your kid, while this litigation is going on, is seen as kidnapping. International kidnapping, yeah. And so he gets into jail for a long time. And the mother's family never end up taking her because that never gets settled. So she goes into foster care. Oh, my goodness. In the most abusive, horrible thing from the age of four. And then when she finally, uh, she gets a scholarship to go to university, by which time her dad is out of prison. And he says, come live with me. She says, dad, I want to, but I've got this scholarship. I can't lose the scholarship. I get to actually, you know, stay at the university and all my meals are covered. And she has no money for clothes. And it's like really, really on the edge living. And then she finally graduates and graduation is going to be next week. And then she can live with her dad. And this has been a journey for both of them. And he dies. Is this a true story? It's a true story. And so... One part of her was like, you know, I don't deserve to be happy and successful. And the other part is I have to for my kids. It's a massive amount of stress, anxiety, no hope. And then there's all kinds of things going along. And so we resolved that the first session. What did you resolve? Using NLP, we resolved the inner conflict between the two warring parts. I know I need to succeed and you don't deserve, you're not worthy to succeed. We resolve that in a focus. And for her is, uh, I need to shine was the underlying belief that we created. And so didn't teach her a thing about real estate. She's a realtor and she reports back a week later. Umar, I got two listings this week. Within a month, she had like four. Within two months, she had like uh 12 listings. She says, I've never, ever had this many listings. People are coming out of the woodwork. We didn't teach her a thing about selling. But what we ended up doing was week by week, breaking through those old beliefs. And for her right now, she is happy. And this is what her kids tell her. Mom, uh, her name's Tina. We never want you to go back to Tina 1.0. We love Tina 2.0. So while there are these like magical moments and helping Tina to identify the two warring parts, so giving them some language, it sounds like. And resolve. And and resolve. resolve, What's the NLP mechanism for people who are unfamiliar that you are relying upon? Like what does it look like in your session? Okay, so what it looks like is this. So... Initially, it's like, Tina, when you go to do X and you're not doing it, tell me about a particular time that happened. She goes, oh, it happened just last week. I said, okay, in your mind, go back to that moment, see what you saw back then, hear what you heard back then. She goes, okay. By the way, when you do those two things, you get to re-experience that feeling. Right, so you're recreating the And she's getting this uncomfortable feeling. There's a part of your mind that is creating that feeling. Just imagine it sitting on the palm of your hand. And then we start verbalizing around it. But we're also doing is we're actually connecting that uh, thing in her mind. We're crystallizing it in her hand. And then we get the other part in the other hand. And then when we go to integrate them, they don't bring their hands together. Their hands start coming together unconsciously. In fact, I've had people there saying I was fighting it, but they came together. And then we place it inside the body. And for her, it was like, whoa, 
like something fundamentally has changed and we can go in and change a belief like that. And for her, it was like transformational. And she'd been in therapy for, for years. Was it useful? Absolutely. What this does is it circumvents the mind. Let's just go in at a much deeper level and create change. And so it's taking these beginning, even before their insights, really, but the clarity, so helping to really identify, and then almost pulling it out like, like a thought in a physical kind of way, like hold it in the palm of your hand. So it has something around almost like energy, um, yep. matter mass, but energy. And both hands, so it's there's something balancing around the brain, the neuro, and the left and the right. And then the process, another angle of integration that neuro-linguistic programming is accelerating. How is it that those hands then want to come together on their own without the mind saying, put those hands together? So what we look for is the highest intention of both parts. So what most people think is, you know, there's a part of me that wants to uh, cut myself. Most people say that's the bad part. Let's say it's a cutting thing. That's the bad part. We've got to get rid of that part. And the answer is no, it is not the bad part. Helping somebody really understand why they're cutting. And this takes getting the conscious mind to step aside. For this young lady, she was 14. When she was younger, for whatever reason, she built a shield around her heart to protect herself. The person that loves her most and the person that she loves most in the world is her mom. Because she's got this massive shield around her heart to protect herself. She can't feel her mother's love. Mm. When she does feel it is when she cuts herself and her mother freaks out. Her emotions go off the charts and it penetrates that. So once we discovered what's really going on, then it's like, okay, there's a shield in the way. If I could help you remove the shield, then you wouldn't need to cut. Then you just feel your mom's love. And so we went in and figured out. So there's a lot of tools in NLP and hypnosis and applied neuroscience. And my goal is never to go in and say, this is the tool for you. This is the tool that works. You will do this. What I want to do is figure out what would be the right tool for you. And part of it is like energy is there. So when you and I are together, there is, if I'm being really honest and open, it causes you to do the same, even if you didn't want to, it does. Is that like and then, part of uh, mirror neurons too, I think? Yeah. And then we've got this connection. So I had this one uh, woman come in who is an alcoholic. And as we're sitting together, the sense I get before you even start is it's about unhappiness. And I just uh, test the theory and I go, you know, Jody, talk to me about unhappiness. And her whole face drops. She goes, oh, my God. That's why I drink is to mask that. Like, did she know it at some level? Probably. But that's the sense I got only by getting into rapport with that human being and you get that insight. So that is what I like about NLP and some of the other modalities is the speed of it. Because can you get there with other modalities? Absolutely. Are there better ones for different things? Absolutely. But the fastest one I know is NLP because it allows you to sidestep the conscious mind and go figure out what the core issue is. And once we've got the core issue, we've got lots of tools to create transformation and change. So how did you come to realize that these learnings in contemporary neuroscience could help a whole other sector of clients who are wanting to sell something 
also accelerate. How did that come about? Because I was a salesperson and sometimes you go to do something. Here's an old sales joke. Uh, Do you know how to make a salesperson cry? Give them a telephone. Uh, Because the fear of cold calling is a real thing. So we all have, we're going to go back to trauma and families because that's where we go next. But we all have a level of self-worth. And if we consciously think, you know, I'm worth $300,000, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I love that. But if unconsciously we think we're worth $70,000, as soon as you get near $70,000, a lot of salespeople take their foot off the gas. Or they show up late for a meeting and this is going to get them another hundred thousand. They really, really want it. And they screw it up and they go back to the 70,000. They hover there all the time. Sometimes go above, but they figure out a way to go below. If they get fired, they get a job at about $70,000. So uh, our self-worth is at uh, play there. Uh, The need for approval for a lot of people, a lot of CEOs, like I need to be liked. So I don't want to charge Louise too much because you may not like me. Or I map over my, uh, I was working with an artist. This was just an interview for the podcast because I wanted to find out the relationship between art and commerce. And this guy does amazing metal sculptures. Some of them have been on the Game of Thrones. So this guy's super talented. And he was telling me about going to this three-day art fair and he didn't sell anything. And on the last day, this guy comes over, looks at a sculpture behind him and he thinks is beautiful. He says, how much is that? And our hero goes, $15,000. And the guy goes, goes, $15,000? As in, I can't believe it's so Like, is that all? (laughs) But he's thinking, oh, my God, I've overstated it. He said, I was this close to offering it to him for $7,000. And just before I did that, the guy said, I'll take it. But his internal belief was, you know, uh, it's too much. I'm not worth it. And so salespeople do the same thing. It's like uh, our relationships around money dictate how well we do. Our relationships around the need for approval dictate how well we do. So even though the topic is sales, we really go down to what are your beliefs about yourself, your self-worth? Where do you feel uncomfortable doing what? Let's figure out what causes it. And oftentimes it's a childhood experience where we've made a meaning of something that creates that. But I want to go back to what you were talking about, people going through trauma and the families around them. So here's what happens oftentimes is even though, let's say, mom wasn't there, couldn't have done anything to prevent this, there's guilt. I should have been there. Mm-hmm. Or if I had done this or if I had done that. That happens with a number of families in spinal cord injury, but we can just also, again, fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be spinal cord injury. It could be any yeah. trauma, right? Any a child trauma. really harming themselves, a, a rape of a young daughter, all kinds of things that parents could really, really uh, take on that new belief system. Then you've got the person that went through the trauma themselves. Is it like, did I deserve it? Will I ever get better? Look, people can get better. Would I get better? And just all that stuff around mindset. Here's the problem. It's if you've got, let's say, a family of five and uh, brother, sister, mother, father, grandparents, whatever's there. And we've got our hero in this family, and they've got a certain structure in this family, how they relate to each other and what their roles are. And then this person, our hero, goes through trauma. Could be a spinal cord injury, could be a beating up, a mugging, a rape, what what have you. Because they're part of the system, they change the system and how people show up. Yeah, the family system. people show up as in, you're fragile, you're broken, and we need to make sure we look after you. And that may be good for the first day or two, 
But after that, it keeps the person who's the victim as a prisoner in that space. Because you start defining yourself as I'm the big brother and I'm here to save you and you can't do this yourself. So what we need to do is to get the family to release and the person that's going through it to release. And I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, I had this young lady come in just before the Maryland State Assessment. And her test was the next day. And she comes in with her mom. And she's like seven or eight or whatever the age is. And uh, so the first thing I say to this young girl is, so you've got the, uh, the test tomorrow, right? She goes, uh-huh. And you're probably going to fail. And the mom's like, what are you talking about? Oh, my God, you're supposed to tell her she's a genius. She's going to be okay. <laughs> and this is what the young girl does. What the young girl does is this. She goes, <sighs> she sighs because she's so used to people saying, no, you're smart. You'll do okay. You're amazing. And all I did was acknowledge that, no, you are going to fail. And then I give a pause. And then I go, well, unless we figure out how to change that, right? And she's like, okay, had I gone in and said, we can change this, you're going to do better, there would have been resistance there. Yeah. And because I acknowledged how she felt and then gave it a breath and then said, well, unless we do something different, right? Then she's like, yeah. Whereas before, if I'd not done that, so sometimes the victim is there. And we need to let them feel like a victim and acknowledge what's going on, but then allow for the possibility of change. Because oftentimes that defines their new way of being. Yeah, and it's all, it's all really about the techniques and the belief in their capacity, but the techniques of loosening that grip and lessening the resistance. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. people get, so there's like you know, several ways to kind of change how we show up in the world. Uh, one way is we get really, really sick and we get to uh, death's door and all of a sudden we reevaluate who we are and all of a sudden we go, oh my God, why, is, why am I freaking out about all these non-important things? I should focus on this. And then they get better. And the question I have for people is, they call it remission when that happens with cancer, is that did this, them getting better, was it because they got a new mission in life that allowed for them to transform and start getting better? Or they started getting better and then all of a sudden they went, oh, wait a minute, I need to start focusing on this. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's so close, it doesn't really make a difference. So the first thing I would do with someone that's gone through trauma is this, is to just let them feel exactly what they're feeling in a way that's safe. So I've got this new app. It's called, I'm going to do a side story and come back. That's called uh, Mindset Boosters. And it's got different tracks to allow you to decide how you feel and show up in life. And one of the tracks is talking to your future self. So I put someone in a hypnotic trance and they meet their future self that has wisdom that they need. And so I'm in a new relationship. And so I said, oh, I should eat my own dog food. So I go into this track for about eight minutes. And what comes out of it is this is my future self tells me you should write love letters to Sheena. And then my future self says, you'd suck at that, but you're really great at doing videos. Do video love letters, love videos. And so I've been doing that. And the complaint I get from Sheena is, stop making me cry. Because each time I get one of these, I get tears of happiness. And so for someone that's gone through trauma, you know, they need to settle into it for a little while. But once they've settled in, sometimes one of the techniques might be is to put them in a hypnotic trance and have them meet their future self from two years from now that can say, 
things that are so wise and so profound. And to that person, it's like they're talking to their future self. Like this wiser version of themselves is giving them advice. Whereas if I gave it or you gave it or an outside person or mom and dad, there's a block and a shield from receiving it. But when they receive it from themselves, it's like, kiddo, you're going to be okay. It looks bad now, but things turn out not too bad. This is what I want you to focus on. And just that little thing could give them the advice they need to start loosening their grip. I'm holding a pen again really tightly and allows for the possibility of change. Because sometimes what happens is you've got someone that's gone through trauma and they've got a belief this will never change. Some people have a belief that change is possible, just not for me. And some people get the sense of this is going to change for me. And so if you happen to have one change is possible, just not for me, then that's what we need to work on is what belief is causing that. And if we could change that belief, then it would open up the possibility for change. And does that mean that they would walk again? I'm not sure. But what it does mean is that they would see the opportunities that are there for them. I love this quote from uh, Helen Keller. I'm going to get it wrong here. I'm just paraphrasing. When the door of happiness closes, we're so busy looking at the closed door that we fail to see all the other ones that have opened up. And what I want for people going through trauma is to see open doors of opportunity for what's possible for them, that they're worthy of change and getting better and living their lives again. And for the people in their families that are kind of stuck in this traumatic place, it also allows them to see the possibility of change for them to help the person in the way that they need it. That takes us into another whole area of discussion, but how it is that anyone can be helpful to someone in trauma. And, you know, the, the example, that, of course, that we're talking about is spinal cord injury trauma, which is massive because you're really losing just about everything that you ever claimed was normal. You know, your, your job, your home ability yeah. to move, your ability to make plans, it, and, and it's not temporary. But this piece that I think is really interesting around change, coming back to the example that you were giving, I think there also might be, and I love your comments on this, Umar, another change that becomes important and to be open to in at least spinal cord injury, which is the one where you've got a really positive, hopeful parent or person or partner around the loved one who's been injured. And it's, I'm going to lasso this and harness this, and we're going to make this change happen. We're going to make whatever is possible. We're going to do it. You know, we're up for this, like gung-ho. When the cutting edge, and I, of course, I'm speaking from my own experience, my own cloth here, the cutting edge of that piece of cloth is how can I actually with all my fervor and hopefulness not get in the way of some other type of change that I may not have ever imagined. Can you speak to that and in your work about what may have come about? Yeah, so if I understand the question is sometimes you get this gung-ho person that, you know, I'm going to make sure this change happens. Uh, I had this woman, uh, her husband was going in for surgery and he was going to lose a ton of weight. The surgery does that. And she had said, not on my watch. And sure enough, her husband lost very little weight. But what she ended up doing was creating a belief for herself that uh, if I stop eating, he will die. 
So uh, the other thing that came up when you were asking that, uh, saying that is sometimes you get people that there's cancer involved and it's like, Louise, we're going to fight this, even if it kills you. And sometimes the person that's the patient going through this test after test, after surgery, after surgery, at some point, they're just like, ready, I'm going to come on. You know, I want to stop, but they feel so bad because mom or dad or their spouse is so gung-ho about it without consideration for the person going through the procedure. And we take on these personas and really what we need to do is just you and I as human beings that are like fully functional and love each other, it's still really important that my intent when I deal with you is, is true and pure and there's love in my heart. And when there's trauma involved, what is your intent in helping that person or child, your spouse? And are you coming at this from a place of love? And I think oftentimes people are not. And the reason they're not coming at it from a place of love is because they've been thrown into the fight or flight response. I'm going to lose my son or I'm going to lose my husband. And they go into this fight or flight response and they're coming from that level of angst. And your listeners and viewers, you are seeing me kind of cringe my hands like death claws that they come from this place of trauma. And to them, it's like, this is love. And love is about being and how you connect. And I think sometimes if we can use that, it doesn't mean, you know, leave it to the universe and we'll all be free and everything will be okay. But if you stepped into the place of love, when you are dealing with a person that's gone through the trauma, then you can be there with that person without having to say all this stuff, just the being with them and the intent to support them in the way that they need it uh, is so powerful, but we're not trained to do that. We are trained to do things differently. It is so powerful. I think it can be a bit of a conundrum because in the spinal cord injury world, but again, you know, any large catastrophe that requires a, a long haul of rehabilitation ahead. Oh, yeah. And even culturally, possibly for North Americans, but could be around the world as well, fighting for for someone to change something or to restore something is seen as an act of love and indeed it truly is in many instances but yeah. there is a real point of discernment around when it's coming from love and is that the only way or the main way um, or or was it the the main and only way at one point but now it's been outgrown or needs to pivot in some way. But here's my view on it. And I don't know anything about the subject, but here's my uh, view on it is oftentimes people that are like the monsters in a hospital are uh, the loved ones. The patient usually is like, you know, Hey, what do we need to do? And the reason the loved ones become so obnoxious is because they're in that fight or flight response. It's like they're panicked. They want something. And that sometimes you need to tell doctors, you know, get off your butt and do something. And I need these resources, make it happen. And sometimes that's absolutely appropriate. A lot of times it isn't. But what would be interesting is if we came at it from a place of love and sometimes love equals being fierce, 
And sometimes love equals being compassionate. And if you can get attuned with people and you go, okay, what I need to do is I need to recruit this doctor to really spend extra time with my uh, loved one and really think outside of what's possible to create the best solution. And how can I get more heart space and mind space and time from this person? And sometimes being obnoxious and a warrior isn't helpful. And sometimes it is. And with the nurses and with your loved one, depending on which day it happens to be, because it's like a, a, like a long haul thing is tiring for everybody. But if you can just step into that place of love, you almost get this innate sense of what you need to do in that moment. It just kind of transforms uh, how you show up and you pay attention to what's going on. Because oftentimes we're trying to maintain our own image of, you know, I need to be strong for Louise. So that what does strong mean to Umar? It means X, Y, Z. And sometimes that's really useful. And sometimes like, oh, how can I show up for Louise today in this moment that would be most useful for her? And then that allows me to kind of see the nuances I need that day. Yeah, one of the real learnings for me over these many years of studying trauma and trauma healing before Archer was injured and then accelerating my own understanding and, and growth because I was now the laboratory around trauma healing was this concept of integration and how that warrior mom, let's say, right, or warrior dad, the fighter, operating still perhaps on fight or flight underneath of which is incredible fear, right? Fear of death of, of a loved Absolutely. one. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. Yeah, just unbelievable. Fear, you know, fear of just loss of everything. That it's inc it's highly intelligent at that time for those parents who do that. But to remain in that high level of intensity and fighting for months, if not years, will then not necessarily be so intelligent any longer, even though that's all the body seems to know. And I suspect this is where neuro-linguistic programming and your breakthrough work could also really be instructive because if I presented to you in that way and said, I, I can't stop you know, fighting for my son, he doesn't even want to do these things, but I'm, gonna, I'm taking him to therapy, I'm making the electricity go so that power wheelchair gets in the van and we're going on this and I'm berating him or whatever it is because I love him. We've got to get better. He's close or he's going to walk again. I mean, there can be that energetic desire around that. Yeah. How might NLP and your work help someone, even if they're not quite doing it to that extreme, recognize these competing belief systems? So let's say it's a mom, just because we're going to pick. Uh... Yeah, yeah. And the question for the mom is, is this working for your son in this situation, what you're doing right now? And the answer could be yes or no. Is this working for you? And the answer could be yes or no. But let's say let's, it's the only thing I know how to do, and I'm going to keep on doing it, but we're not really getting the results we want. And it's like, okay, if I could help you be more resourceful and recruit the people you need to recruit to help your child get the attention they need, no matter what that happens to be, would that be more useful? And if the answer is 
well, yeah, that would be more useful. Then we can go in and say, okay, let's figure out what's what's driving that behavior for you to be like the Attila the Hun in, in all things at all times to maintain your identity, to be that loving mother, to do this. And then let's give you some more flexibility and more options. Because in systems theory, the strongest element in the system is not the most powerful one, it's the most flexible one. And we know like that the most family systems work. Yeah, and the most flexible person in the entire household is the two-year-old. Because they know how to be cute. They know which parent to go to. They can throw a temper tantrum. They can hold their breath. They've got like this whole raft of NLP tools at their disposal to get what they want. And that's what we need <laughs> is, to, is to look after ourselves. And oftentimes I imagine that a lot of parents just run themselves ragged. Just oh, exhausted. I, I think many caregivers, mothers and fathers for sure, but they could have they can turn their own lives completely inside out as well with cooking in the right ways and nutritionally in the right ways and even through integrative health in the right ways. All these really good things, but that they can lose themselves in their own, whether it was a career path or whether it were activities outside of that household and what then is devoted to anyone who needs care and in the case of spinal cord injury that will truly be not just the last six months with mom um, or the last couple years really taking care of of my parent which is always such an act of love uh, when when children do that for their elderly parents. But in the spinal cord injury world, it can still be a total act of love, but it can truly be for the long haul. And where is it that it is of the resources and of service? I love the question that you asked after the yes or no's. Is yeah, and also sometimes it's like a guilt there. You know, if I look after myself and I, like I shouldn't be doing that, all my focus should be on... The person that's injured and the reality is if you can be stronger and better rested you're a better warrior and support for the person you're caring for and sometimes you feel guilty doing that and it's like no look after yourself as well because this is the long haul and if you burn yourself out or you wither away that's not going to do anybody any good so that's part of the things we need to change is you know uh, what's the how do you need to show up for your son and how do we help them get the transformation they need and how do we do it in a holistic way that everybody can do that and does that mean there'll be less intensity no it doesn't need to be but the meaning we make around it is different right thinking, Umar, maybe as a one last final real meaty piece around enmeshment. We both have used, and you have in particular in our conversation, a number of psychological terms, and you're familiar with enmeshment. How might, which I I believe happens in a number of families who have experienced trauma and with someone who then needs to be cared for in a very real way, whether they're a child or whether they're a young adult or an adult, how might your work in, and the work of neuro-linguistic programming and neuroscience, how might that help a family that is enmeshed without their realizing that they 
perhaps are or coming to you. Well, let me define country. the term so you and I are on the same page. Yeah, okay. So, so en- enmeshment and coming out of family systems work, but really truly defined in the clearest ways by Pia Melody. I think she's really what would who would be like like if if Bessel van der Kolk is kind of one of the grandfathers of understanding how trauma resides in the body. Pia Melody would be like the grandmother of yeah. in the family systems work of defining how enmeshment is through it almost becomes an abusive aspect, but when two people have so merged together that they are inseparable and are not sure of their own identity outside their interaction mm. with the other. So very much, there's an old shrink joke that was always old. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the bulb has to want to change. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. oftentimes, uh, if they can't recognize this is going on, it's a difficult thing to do, but sometimes they can't. It's like, hey, wait a minute. I'm losing identity, and if I could just, because sometimes uh, if I could just regain my identity, and I think what's really useful is asking uh, when it comes to who you are, defining your identity again, and getting people to just articulate that through just questioning, and how has that changed from two years ago when this medical, medical tragedy happened to now? And then they kind of go, oh, but they need to understand what it is. And so if it was like, what's, so the question would be really simple. What's important to you about being a mediation expert? And you would answer whatever, what's the first thing pops in your head, Louise? Influencing other people with what is within their capacity to do. Yeah. And you would have a series that if I asked five or six times, You'd come up with a list of what defines you. And then, oh, Louise, you said, you know, the ability to influence others. How will you know that you're actually doing that? What would you be able to see, hear, and physically touch that will let you know that you are influential? And then you might say, you know, people tell me that, you know, it made a difference. I'd see it in their faces. Oh, yeah. you could, Right. We've this. got a whole list of those when we yeah. do trainings, right? You could, the, the use of language, and the use of shifting towards someone, the way eye contact is used, the way... Um, all that stuff, yeah, all right? all those things. And so, yeah. and if it was, let's say, uh, a mom was a nurse or dad was a lawyer, and then you get them to identify their value system around that identity, and then, you know, what's important to you about being X, Y, Z, and then they give you a list, then you go down to each one of those and say, how will you know? That's the criteria. And then you go, oh, okay, so this is who you are. And they go, yeah, that's who I am in this context of work, but it could be around what's important to you about being a mother, and there'll be a different list. And then you get them to define who they are and say, okay, that defines you. Are you actually living that? And then it's like, no, I'm not. Yeah, oh, I, exactly, now? because I think this is very really real, clearly. super real. And to help people see that really clearly in the trauma space of caregiving, because I would suspect that when you mentioned that the bulb has to want to, well, the bulb might show up with the therapist or the NLP practitioner or the mediator or any of a number of us in the field of human development 
miserable, right? Or complaining or sad or saying I'm losing myself or something is just not right in my life. And to discover that it could be one's own creating the boundary that she may have had as a successful or happy person became very permeable with another, the person whom she's now caring for, whom she loves. And those boundaries are all enmeshed with each other. To have her then realize that, that's a, that's a big insight. But then I'm wondering how NLP might really accelerate the breakthroughs for her. Two ways. Uh, I'll give you one NLP and one spiritual. So the NLP thing would be, oh, so you're kind of feeling this, you know, you're kind of losing yourself. Tell me about a particular time you felt you were losing yourself. And then they go, oh, I was at work and this was going on and I felt, and when you take them back there and get them to re-experience that feeling, then you can question the feeling of, let's say, what that feeling is, because it's legitimate, because it's going back to a particular time. And through languaging, figure out what's really driving it. And that could be the core belief that's driving this enmeshment. So whereas if you ask them about it uh, at a higher level, it'd be hard to articulate or find. But this one, you can just go down to, bam, oh, it's a belief about, uh, you know, my life is over. Let's say that's the belief that ended up coming after this tragic event. Then, of course, if that's the belief, you can actually manufacture your life to make that belief a reality and to be true. And it might be true for like the first three months, but then if it becomes a belief, then it's true from then on, unless you change it. And the only problem is it's in the unconscious. So just so that we can really anchor this, NLP and your work is really about getting to the core belief that's underlying thinking the and the symptoms. The and behaviors and the symptoms and the anxiety and the uncertainty. Think of it as a bunch of grapes and all the grapes are symptoms but the stem of the bunch is the core belief. And if you, if one got a belief that I'm unlovable, there may be evidence to prove that that's not true. And so a teacher at class, when you're five, looks at you funny and you go, oh, they hate me. And another grape gets on that uh, stem. And then later on, somebody, your parents don't give you the first piece of dessert. They give it to you second as a, oh, they like, you know, Jody more than me, another grape comes on. And before you know it, this lie that I'm not lovable has 50 grapes around it and it becomes hairy and scary and we make it a self-fulfilling prophecy and then we don't go anywhere near it because it's too horrible to even contemplate. And if we go to therapy, we take a grape at a time off. But as soon as you take a grape off because the underlying belief is there, the core belief, another grape replaces it. So you never get better or it's really difficult. The trick is with NLP is we go into the core belief and remove it, and all the grapes fall off, and you get freedom. It's mm, mm, a beautiful analogy, Umar. So for all of us to consider where might our bundle of grapes be, and to consider or working with somebody else what the core belief is that keeps fueling that bundle that we might want to change, shift, so that what burdens us can really wither away so we no longer need it any longer and we can blow it away like dust. Yeah, and here's the question to ask yourself is, uh, this behavior, I'm doing these behaviors, what could the underlying belief be that could create this behavior? 
they'll start giving you clues how to find it really quickly. And when you're with somebody else and they're being like uh, idiots, you might go, well, I hate that behavior. But if you ask yourself, what must be the underlying belief that's causing that? Then you'll get a glimpse at it. And then you might even test that hypothesis, not by saying, you've got this belief, but saying, you know, uh, could this be going on? And then with that tone of voice, and they might go, huh, yeah, I think so. But anyway, that's it. Language is how we communicate. That's how we find amazing things. And that's how I found you. It is. And the neuro, which we've learned so much from you about with the brain and the linguistic, the language and the programming and reprogramming. Very much how the brain processes stuff is programming. And uh, so a beautiful thing. And thank you, Umar. uh, Beautiful conversation. Beautiful. And also for those who might be interested, do check out the Mindset Booster app. It is it's special and will help you in a number of different ways. And I thank you for that creation, Umar. And thank you for this time and for all that you give to the planet and all the lives that you have influenced and helped change. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, listeners. Uh, have a blessed day. Thank you, Umar, for your insights today. These are vital learnings for anyone in any walk of life. We all carry trauma to some degree in our thinking, and that is why it is so important to continue having these conversations and sharing them far and wide. It's part of our collective growth mindset here at Blink of an Eye. Yes. We are all on a continual path of healing, learning, and elevating. It's a joy to share resources and to open pathways for people to deepen or to begin their own healing journeys. From polyvagal theory, we learn that our nervous systems communicate with each other even more efficiently than our words. So if you are spending more time in a grounded, centered, relational state, that will spread to those around you. And whatever your background, whatever work you do, whether you are spinal cord injured, or you care for someone who is, or are just interested in the field of trauma healing, I am so glad we are together. Just listening in together creates an energy field. We are finding more spaciousness in our community and in our world for healing. Please help us spread this healing resource far and wide. If you learned something today, or if you have some insights of your own to share, please reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or by email at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with a friend who might gain something as well. You can also support the podcast directly by becoming a patron at Patreon. All those links are in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration.
for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 20, School in an SCI Rehab Facility. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by the Blink of an Eye Nonprofit, a nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. Blink of an Eye provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. Blink of an Eye also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. To donate and find out more, visit www.blinkofaneye.org or events.icthat.org.